0: Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the gospel according to Matthew, chapter 9, and we'll be reading verses 9 through 13. Matthew 9, beginning in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, many of us wonder if we might hear if you would speak, and others of us strut as though we need no instruction. And so we thank you, O Lord of heaven and earth, that to the sinner and the Pharisee alike, you hear and you speak a word, and you long to give us life. And so we pray this day, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts may be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You can be seated. Perhaps you've heard of that great gospel hymn. It's tough to trace back. It's so well known and yet difficult to locate originally. We think it probably was first sung in the year 1873. It's celebrated in both white and black churches in this land, which was quite something in the 1870s. And perhaps you've heard it in more recent decades. Give me that old-time religion. Give me that old-time religion. Give me that old-time religion. It's good enough for me. Why? Why is it good enough? It doesn't say much, does it? It doesn't expound and clarify and specify and define precisely what's so good. In fact, it seems that it celebrates the familiar, the known, that which is common, that which is experienced, perhaps for a very long time. And I think that commends a lot of why we oftentimes are drawn to traditions, because they are comfortable. I'm a big fan of tradition, and one of my great jobs as a teacher is to serve, as I tell students, as a medium, trying to connect them with traditions of the dead that they need to learn from and be challenged by. But I'm alert to the fact that today, we can oftentimes fall into the rut of leaning on tradition simply because it's familiar. And that's nothing new about today. As we read the Bible, we can find Jesus castigating those around him. Oftentimes religious leaders like the Pharisees, who we learn of in this passage for celebrating traditions that enable them to go on cruise control. As we look at this passage this morning, I, I hope not that it will burst the seams and explode your expectations about the value of traditions, but rather that it will reshape and reframe what you think tradition is for. That good tradition, biblical scriptural traditions, are meant not to make our lives comfortable, but to constantly unsettle us with the grace of God. The grace that always longs to transform us more and more. And I think as we look through the two movements of this passage, we will see that Jesus is pointing us to an old religion that leads us to ever new experiences of grace. And that that's as true for women and men in the 21st century as it was for these Jews and Gentiles of the first century. So let's follow the passage and see ways in which Jesus is going to break the rules of religion and recast our vision for the newness of grace. And we begin in verse 9. We see the, the first scene of this short passage. Jesus is passing on and he sees a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he says to him, follow me. And Matthew rose and followed him. This is the rare occurrence where the author of this gospel account is named and is involved in the story. The evangelists tend not to write themselves in very much. And it's not for nothing that of the small details we learn of Matthew, they are not necessarily commendable. Matthew is there and he's a tax collector. A tax collector is someone who is not viewed terribly highly by Jews. Matthew is a Jew himself, but he is in cahoots with the oppressive authorities, with Rome. He has effectively sold out his people for financial gain. This would be the equivalent today of someone here who would be working the black market, making money off of supplying our foreign enemies or terrorist cells. This would be someone who would be gaining financially by giving up their people's good for their own good. And Matthew divulges this. This is his background. This is his occupation. Amongst a land and a people, the Israelites, who by and large suffer greatly, who experience several decades in this first century of financial Depredation, of difficulty, as enslaved peoples often do. Matthew is the rare one who's risen up out of the ranks. He may have sold his soul, but he's made several bucks along the way. And Jesus addresses him. Jesus calls out to him. Jesus summons him to follow me. Notice the cost of following me, the cost of hearkening to Jesus' word. Matthew literally has to get up out of the tax booth and to leave. In doing so, he is no doubt entering uncharted territory. Rome will not have him back. Just as the soldier who would leave his company will not be returning to a warm embrace, so the tax collector who has left the booth will not be returning to find that his job is awaiting for him. Matthew is venturing out into the unknown. And of course, Matthew is venturing out realizing that just as Rome will spurn him, just as the authorities will call him a sellout and a deserter, so his people are not going to be inclined to welcome him back, to have him amongst them. He's been oppressing them. He's been working for the system that has been taking their money and exploiting them. He, in many ways, is stepping out into an abyss, not knowing where he will go. I'm struck by the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a man who similarly felt that Jesus was calling him to step out from the normal order and the settled ways of his time to follow Christ in the 1930s. In Germany, when it seemed that the church was falling into step with National Socialism and the Nazi Genocide, this is what Bonhoeffer says of the call of discipleship. He says, To follow in Jesus' steps is something which is void of all content. It gives us no intelligible program for the way of life, no particular goal or ideal that we strive after. It's not a cause which our human calculation might deem worthy of our devotion even the devotion of ourselves. What happens? At the call, he leaves all that he has. But not because he thinks that he might be doing something worthwhile, but simply for the sake of the call. The disciple simply burns his boats and goes ahead. Friends, it's crucial to catch here that Jesus summons the tax collector and he calls him to leave all behind. Like God In Genesis 12, calling Abram away from all order, all security, all calculation, all strategy into the great unknown. So Jesus is calling Matthew away from the only life, the only employment, the only success he's known. From the only optimism, the only possibility he might be able to calculate. And it's fascinating to see what's not said. Jesus gives two words and nothing else. He doesn't give an argument. He doesn't give an advertisement. He doesn't somehow promise things. He doesn't tell Matthew that things are worse where he is or they'll be better where he's being summoned to. He simply says, follow me. Isn't that a remarkable parable of following Jesus? That so often, the kind of answers and rationalizations that we want to have, the questions we want answered as we lay on the pillow late at night seeking closure, that so often they're not given. So often we're left simply with that remarkable call to Abram, to Matthew, to you or to me. Follow me. Leave the familiar Trust the voice of the one who summons. And so I think in this first vignette, this first moment of our text, we see the remarkable demand of discipleship. That it summons us to give up everything. Not least our dreams. Not least our security. Not least our very selves. As we follow the call of Christ. But there's a second vignette Notice that the text goes on, and in verse 10, we pick this up. It seems to be sometime later. It suggests that it's fairly close thereafter, but we don't know exactly if we're talking about later that day or a few days uh, later, and we read this. As Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and with sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. If Jesus has, has first broken a social rule by getting right up in Matthew's business and calling him out from his employment and calling him away from his political commitments, Jesus is now going to break another social rule, we realize. And Matthew wants to catch your attention. Uh, A regular feature in the gospel, according to Matthew, is the use of the word behold or see. As Jesus is pointing something out, as Jesus is preparing people for a startling reality or experience, he will very regularly use this word, behold, or see. It's a prompt. It's an alert. It's meant to catch your attention so that you don't skate past something that's absolutely surprising and also easily missed. If you blink too long, you'll fail to catch something that doesn't seem quite right. We see this, for example, earlier in chapter 8, verse 2. Jesus is about to heal a leper, and we're prompted to remember that we behold this, that we not miss this. In verse 24, we're going to be told that a storm, a violent tempest upon the waters is going to be calmed by one who could even sleep amidst it. And Matthew doesn't want you to miss that. In verse 29, we're told that Demons and spiritual forces that would seek to oppress and to harm are going to be cast out and commanded by one with the very authority of God, and Jesus doesn't want you to miss that. We could go on, for instance, in chapter 12, verse 46, Jesus is going to subtly redefine our priorities of relationships, redefining the family, most intimately, as the church community, who are my mothers and brothers, and he'll say, behold lest we miss that redefinition of our closest connections. And here, he says, Behold, be alert, don't fall into cruise control, but catch the oddity of sinners coming to a rabbi. Now, I can tell you, I'm no rabbi. I don't have uh, some of the accoutrement of a, a rabbi. I perhaps appear a bit more common in the day-to-day, but I can tell you uh, just this past week that when people find out that you're a religious teacher, they tend to relate slightly differently to you. <laughs> I was in a doctor's office just a week ago getting some tests done, and coming out of that and waking up, I was uh, addressed by a nurse who was very kind and Amongst her humor and her welcome to me, she was swearing like a sailor left and right. And then the question came as she was talking about what I was going to go do the rest of the day. I said, well, I'm going to go back to work. Oh, what do you do? I'm a teacher. You might not want to do that. Where do you teach? I teach at a seminary. (laughs) Yeah. And there was no more cursing after that, (laughs) right? People treat religious authority figures differently at least when they don't know them well. The sinner, the tax collector, is not typically found going to the rabbi's house for dinner. And that's what we find in verse 10, that Jesus is there for dinner, and notice how it's put. Tax collectors and sinners are coming to him. He's not somehow commanding them against their will. He's not somehow ushering them in. They are drawn to him. Apparently, the way in which he has called Matthew to newness of life has gotten out. The way in which he has addressed this scandalous sinner, this man who would sell out his own people to build up his own 401k, the way that he has called him to newness of life has trickled down and his former colleagues now want a piece of the action. And so other tax collectors are coming. And other sinners, this broader word meant to suggest people who would be viewed as outside the bounds of civil society. Those people that you wouldn't invite over to your mom's dinner table. They're the ones who are going to come and seek out the presence of Jesus and to dine with him, and this is no small thing. It's one thing to talk, it's another thing to be friendly. It's a far greater thing to sit and to recline at table with someone to show that kind of hospitality and intimacy to them. And that's what we see here, that Jesus is actually welcoming those who would be on the fringe. In his recent book, How to Think, Alan Jacobs gives us a term to define this group of people. They may vary in terms of what puts them there. Perhaps it's their economic status, perhaps it's their educational level, perhaps it's their religious background, perhaps it's their political party and affiliation, but he talks about how all of us are drawn to live in respect to what he calls a repugnant cultural other. There is some group of people who we write off as being outside the fold, being the enemy, perhaps being the one to blame, being the great worry and fear And in this day and age, for the Jew, the tax collector and the sinner have got to be prime examples of that repugnant cultural other, of someone who just doesn't fit, of someone who is breaking the expectations of social grace and custom, of someone who's not behaving according to the mores of their community, who's not exemplifying the excellencies of their city of someone who's not following the rules of their religion in this case. And Jesus is receiving the repugnant cultural other. Jesus is welcoming them. I think of the story, perhaps some of you have read the novels of Toni Morrison, the great Pulitzer Prize winning author. And in her first novel, The Bluest Eye, she tells this tragic story of a small black girl named Pakola Breedlove, who's abused by her father, who's ignored therefore by her mother, and finally, who's ostracized by the small town and community. And throughout the, the entire story, as she experiences that exclusion, she keeps naming it as lacking a blue enough eye or pair of eyes. She just doesn't fit for a variety of reasons. She just doesn't fit their expectations. She's the one Jesus is welcoming in. The person who is cast out. She's the one who's being beckoned into his presence. And friends, I, I think we've got to acknowledge that as we experience grace, as we experience the call of Jesus, we see that Jesus' challenges are assumptions about being in and being out. As Morrison goes on to describe that story of Pecola, she speaks in the voice of the town at the end. And this is what they say in how they've treated this little girl. They say, all of our waste which we dumped on her and which she absorbed, all our beauty which was hers first and she gave to us, all of us, all who knew her felt so wholesome after we cleaned ourselves on her. We were so beautiful when we stood astride her ugliness. Her simplicity decorated us. Her guilt sanctified us. Her pain made us glow with health. Her awkwardness made us think we had a sense of humor. Her inarticulateness made us believe we were eloquent. Her poverty kept us generous. Even her waking dreams we used to silence our own nightmares. And she led us and thereby deserved our contempt We honed our egos on her, patted our characters with her frailty, and yawned in the fantasy of our strength. And it's here that we see Jesus challenge the Pharisees. As the tax collectors and the sinners are coming in, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, say, what is this? Why is this rabbi welcoming the sinner, the ostracized one, the repugnant cultural other into his presence? And notice how Jesus responds. Notice how he addresses that question. First of all, though they don't raise it directly to him, he is the one who responds. He doesn't avoid it. He doesn't treat their pompous strutting, their arrogant smugness as being beyond address or challenge or even change. And so he speaks to them. And notice what he says. He says, first of all, the well don't need the physician, only the sick. And you think that perhaps he's affirming their sense that they're okay, but then he drops in the second line, of course. And he says, you need to go and learn. And he quotes from Hosea 6, where it says that God desires mercy, not sacrifice. He's telling those who are, professional scholars of that Old Testament text that they need to go learn what that Old Testament text says. It's one of the most quoted Old Testament passages in the entire book of Matthew. And it's worth catching something of the broader context. This is what we read beginning in verse 4 of Hosea 6. What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I've hewn them by the prophets, I've slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Hosea is not castigating them for falsely thinking that liturgy and sacrifice and worship matter. He's castigating them for being like the morning dew, I' experienced it just in the past few days, a thick fog that settles in, such that driving to work, people can hardly see but 10 or 20 feet in front of their car. A thick fog that seems to settle over the city, and yet what, an hour later is gone. That's what's wrong with Israel, with Judah. It's not that they've completely spurned the Lord. It's that they show love, and it's love that doesn't last. It's not steadfast love. They show love that is vanity, that is a vapor that's there for a moment and then dissipates and is gone, completely insubstantial. They're interested in the glitz and the glamour but not in the substance of the real thing, faithfulness before God. They're not consistent. They're not whole. They don't bear integrity. Their lives are parceled out. They're not bound and woven together. We see this in the way they treat others. Others who need the same love that they say they celebrate coming from God. I'm reminded of what C.S. Lewis said in an essay called The Inner Ring. Some of you have read it and others of you have not. I'd invite you all to read it at some point. You can google your way to it online. Uh, it's a remarkable little essay where he talks about a common struggle we all feel in different ways. He, he puts it this way. He says one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside what he calls the local ring and the terror of being left outside. It may be that little social circle of friends that you long to be with. It it may be folks who've grown up in town or have been here for a few years and, and you, the snowbird, or you, the new transplant, just don't feel like you're connected to yet. Or it may be those folks who all went to that school or all participated in that kind of profession. It may be those folks who got married and you didn't or had children and you didn't. We long to be in some inner ring and to to find connection there and we fear being cast out. We fear being less involved, less connected than others. And Lewis goes on to say that Even when the ring is a good thing, like being members of a church, like participating in an activity that's meant to honor God and bless one another, it can lead us to do weird and harmful things. He says this, Of all passions, the passion for the inner ring is most skillful in making a man who's not yet a very bad man do very bad things. And isn't that the story of the Pharisees here? that they who purport to love the God of mercy and grace, the God who raised Israel from the dead, would long for people who need to be raised from the dead to be cast out from His presence. That they who claim to be those who sing of God's amazing grace would, in such a graceless manner, desire to wall off and to push out the very ones who need that grace the most. Jesus uses the image, of course, of the physician, the sick and the healthy. Can you imagine the absurdity if every patient who had been brought to wholeness and to health by a a given general practitioner or surgeon, if they were to go in and sort of host a A sit-in in in the doctor's office and they were to lock the door and they were to refuse to let any ill persons in. That would strike you as strange, as odd, as counterintuitive, as missing the boat. And Jesus means to challenge the way that religion can so often go this way. Tradition can so often go this way. The Pharisee in each of us, can be smug and satisfied, and Jesus calls us to a deeper tradition, to what the scriptures of the Old Testament actually teach, that God desires steadfast love and mercy. God desires the knowledge of God. He is not simply satisfied with sacrifice. He is not simply sa- satisfied with burnt offerings. He wants wholeness. He wants integrity. He wants a life that in Every facet is a following of Jesus, because yes, admittedly, when you let the tax collectors and the sinners in, life can get interesting and colorful, life can get surprising, and you don't know quite how it's all going to work out. That's the worry, of course, in keeping sinners out, that you you want things to be orderly, you want things to be predictable, and when you go to the emergency room, you find life is anything but predictable. Predictable. It's anything but clean and orderly. And that's why this follows right on the heels of Jesus' remarkable summons to Matthew. To leave familiarity, to leave order, to leave predictability, to leave security, and to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus, not just in leaving our sins and our, our occupations that would harm others, not just to follow Jesus in leaving bad habits and bad thoughts, but to follow Jesus also in leaving behind our smugness, in leaving what we call security and comfort that is really just laziness and lethargy and a lack of imagination. Jesus tells us in verse 13 that He has come He has come, not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. We've learned, of course, in verse 10, that others have been coming, that the tax collector has come, that the the sinner has come, and Jesus now puts it all in perspective, doesn't He? That, That has occurred because long before, in His incarnation, He has come. Before they were ever wooed or attracted to Him... He was intent on pursuing them, and if we're honest, pursuing us. That he does not view himself as being too high to get his hands dirty. That he does not view himself as being too godly, but that he could experience the grotesque and the gruesome. That he doesn't view himself as being so holy that he can't come down and actually experience the brutal death that he will experience upon the cross. No, his holiness is shown not only in his being transcendent and different, his being pure, his being light itself, but also in his pursuing us in our darkness, in his coming near us. Notice that Jesus identifies the Pharisee with Israel, adulterous Israel. Israel. Israel who took a good vow, Israel who had a good start, who had a happy honeymoon, and then who repeatedly left her husband. She would come back. She would always come back. But she would run off with others. She would be duplicitous with her devotion. She would be divided with her commitment. Jesus is suggesting that's the error of the Pharisee. That's the error of the smug, settled person intent on the status quo. He would suggest that that person, that yearning deep in each of us, that desire to maintain that inner ring, to be on the inside, to have something others don't have, to be in the know, to have that sense of superiority... That is a small part of us that hasn't yet died the death it has to die, that hasn't yet been reborn in the way God longs to bring resurrection, that we, like Jesus, would increasingly be so holy that we could actually go out in pursuit of those who know themselves to be dirty. Let's pray and ask that God would change us, that we might follow that call. Jesus, we thank you that you summon us. None of us are so far off but that you won't speak and call. And yet, your love is not so small that you will leave us as we are. And so we thank you that you come for the left out. And we praise you that you never leave us as we came to you. We thank you for your grace. We pray that as we consider the call of Matthew and as we consider the tax collectors, the sinners who would seek you out and the Pharisees who would scoff, that we might be amazed by the one character in the middle of all those verses, that we would be struck, that we would behold the beauty of our Lord, Jesus, who's come from on high and who's entered the valley of the shadow of death, and who seeks out the sick and the lost and the dead, that he might bring life. May we be struck by his goodness. May we be startled by his mercy. May our hearts be changed, melted, renewed, that when he bids us to come, we might follow. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.